so quiet. I have never known this sensation. Peace. At least, not in recent years. Even when my sister and I were alone, it seemed that there was always someone just on the other side of the door, waiting for us. Waiting to scold us, shout orders. This feeling, this stillness, takes me back to when I was a happy child. When people loved me. When it seemed the whole world could be different. I have often wondered what life would have been like had I been allowed to stay. Would I be dressed beautifully, wrapped in a warm wool coat and hat? Would I have a home and a husband, a little baby on my knee? Would I wake in the morning and smile at lovely weather or migrating birds without a thought in my head of the struggles that existed just a floor above? I do not know. It is clear now that I will never know. I have been on the third floor since the time I entered womanhood. Separate doors, separate staircases, separate bathrooms, separate living quarters, separate dining area. Kept away with the undesirables. This, it would seem, is my punishment. For what, I am not certain. As my sister enters the room, she turns the knob on the bathroom door and I am startled out of my musing. I am still as a statue, but her worried face moves me to action. I turn on the hot tap as far as it will go and remove my blood-soaked clothing. It's curious how much blood fits in a human body. More than you would think. I put my hands under the scalding hot water and watch the blood rinse down the drain, mixing with the water as my own blood rushes to the surface of my fingers, turning them bright pink. I rub them with soap, but the blood is still there. I scrub with a wash rag, and still the stain remains. I come back this time with a scouring pad, but nothing works. My hands are raw and scalded, but this is a stain I can never remove. I notice my sister is quietly crying, and so I add cold water into the basin and instruct her to wash up thoroughly. My training has come back to me, and I remember that cold water is what gets out blood. The lady of the house will not stand for soiled clothing. Madame likes us to be spotless, I say, with a laugh as bitter as the seeds in a lemon. My sister crumples to the floor silently, for we know all too well that the help is not to speak unless spoken to, and it will be quite difficult for Madame to do any speaking from this point forward. I slide my arm around her shoulder and begin to sing a song that smells like the convent's rose garden and feels like the breeze that picks up off the river in June. I have been told a great many times in my short life that I am going to hell. But now, I don't believe there is any going to be done. Hell is ours to make. Hell is the darkness we are submerged in, no matter how hard we try to see the light. Hell is having nothing in your life but pain and sorrow, yet knowing that peace and happiness are just out of reach. Hell is sitting in the oven and looking at the kitchen table. Hell is not an invisible place filled with pointy horns and pitchforks. Hell is what we create to keep others down. Hell, as they say, is other people. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would, would be, be dead. dead.
Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Happy Fourth of July. Oh, yes. Fireworks, fireworks. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the air horn was in our live show so many times. It was so good. And it was good every time. Yeah. <laughs> I know we said we would have Brittany for you guys this week, but her case is just developing too fast and furiously. I mean, like, 48 hours ago, something new happened. Yeah. And so we just needed an extra week to fully research and observe the situation. They can't make any more, like, drastic movements in the case for a little while now, so we're pretty it's pretty stable in reporting it. Um, so tonight, by request, we're going to bring you a case that I originally covered in a campfire story, but it is so good and so famous that we thought it deserved the full podcast treatment. So tonight, we are talking about Christine and Leah Pepin. This case is bizarre and French, so look forward to me struggling over all of the pronunciations. Oui, oui. Leslie can can do all the French stuff, you guys. I mean, you've seen this before. I'm I'm pretty good at pronouncing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, like, not in French. Oh, well, because you learned Spanish, right? I did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're much better at that. I can pronounce It's been so, so long since I've taken it, though. And it's so different. Like, mm-hmm. any kind of language that's similar to Spanish, I'm fine with. And because of the research we've done, I'm pretty decent with, like, Russian and Eastern European stuff, too. Yeah. But, like, French still baffles me. I think because it's—and I don't mean this in any wrong way. No, go ahead. But it kind of has, um, like, a little laziness to it. Yeah, no, that's that's a good and, way to put which it. Which I think is why I like it. Because I babble a lot. You slur your words a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So uh, so it was an easier one for me to pick up the the sounds of the words for. So uh, I've, it's been so long that. I'm too um, much of a control freak. I can't handle it. <laughs> I yeah. can't do it. So you're going to hear my like real tight, scared French pronunciations. I love it. It's going to be great. Feel free to like. Repronounce these things for me in videos. Send us all of them. I'm, <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. I'm here for watching it. Let's make it a funny thing. Anyway, you can look forward to all of that. And if you want to give us something to look forward to, <gasps> lazy segue this week, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a minute and it makes all the difference when it comes to moving We Would Be Dead forward. Plus, it keeps us looking young and I have two more live shows in the works for us, my yes. friends. Leslie and I were just talking about them right beforehand. Um, they're still really early on in the planning phases, but um, one of them might be convenient for friends who enjoy October in New England. Ooh. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. That's fine. Nobody knows. We'll see. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you can get access to extra mini-sodes, our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, discounts in our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feeds to your own. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your Facebook knitting group. Then your friends and a lot of yarn enthusiasts you've never met before can become fiends and we can all hang out together. That sounds wonderful. And I mean, it's just being a good American. I know. Or Canadian. Well, 4th of July is like just American. No, I know. But (laughs) if you're in any other country but want to feel Canadian... I mean, American. <laughs> Sometimes I want to feel Canadian. Yeah, Does that too. count? Okay. What's that about? 
Thank you, John. He's done. They speak French. But yeah, it's fourth of July. And be American and give us a five star review. Stars are very American. Yeah. There you go. The more the merrier. For sure. There's only, there's only five. Thank you. I feel really good about this. You should. <laughs> uh, and if you guys were really looking forward to Brittany, and we're we're looking forward to Brittany. Always looking forward to Brittany. Don't worry. We do have her coming up for you next week. And patrons, it's a pretty safe bet that there will be extra content from that episode for you as well. Oh, there's going to be a lot. We're never going to stop talking. So, <laughs> so you guys can enjoy the overlap. Uh, so, Leslie, is there anything you would like to add before we begin? Yeah, not this week, but maybe next week with Brittany. Now you built it up. You have to have something next week. I don't have to. I'm just saying maybe. I want you to. So bad. I'm hoping. Don't Never mind then. Forget it. <laughs> don't break my heart again. <laughs> Fine. All right then. On with the show. On Thursday, February 2nd, 1933, retired solicitor Rene Lancelin is at his brother's house about to sit down to dinner with his family, but something is missing. Rene walks to the front of the house to look out the windows. Still no sign of them. His wife, Leonie, and daughter Genevieve were extremely late for the gathering, and fear was slowly replacing annoyance as Rene continued to wait for their arrival. The ladies had been out shopping that day and were supposed to come straight to dinner after they had finished. Perhaps they had stopped at home, Rene thought, and got caught up in some business there. Perhaps they were tired after their long day and simply forgot. Girls mm. will never forget a party. No. Rene sat down to dinner and figured they would show up sooner or later. But when the dishes from the main course had been cleared and the women still hadn't arrived, Rene could no longer sit idly by and wait. He excused himself from the party, asking his son-in-law, because Rene and Leonie had an older daughter who was married and lived away from the home, and somehow they made it to the party. They didn't forget. No, they didn't. So he asked his son-in-law to accompany him back home, just in case there had been trouble. This also baffles me, because just in case there had been trouble, you didn't leave. You had dinner and hung out, and then you were like, mm, you should come with me, though. Right. <laughs> okay. So then they headed back to his spacious home at 6 Rue Bruyere in Le Mans. When René arrived, the house was completely dark, except for a dim flicker of light coming from the maid's quarters. And this is 1933, and they had electric lights. So normally the house, if people were home, would have been like a blaze. Right. And like you didn't light your, your room with a candle routinely. Mm -hmm. So this is weird for sure. Rene turned the key in the lock and pushed on the door, but it would not open. It was bolted from the inside. Rene began to shout, calling out to his wife and daughter, hoping they had merely gone to bed and locked the door thoughtlessly. His son-in-law checked the windows, but everything had been shut up tight. As time ticked by and nobody responded to his calling and vigorous knocking, Rene began to feel increasingly panicked, so he and his son-in-law went to the local police station seeking assistance. The local police accompanied Rene and his son-in-law back to the Lancelin residence, where the four of them were able to enter the home by climbing over the garden wall and utilizing a different door without a deadbolt. I'm guessing the police came with a ladder, because it's so funny to me that, like, you couldn't climb a fence without the police and get in the back door? What? There's a lot yeah. of that in this. Okay. Like, they're not guilty of anything. I'm going to, like, cut that off right at the pass. But it's it's such a weird bungling way to discover things. Like, why wouldn't you – if that was my family and I was worried about them, I'd be, like, breaking down the door to get into the house. Yeah. So once the men gained entrance to the house, they quickly realized that the lights hadn't just been shut off. The power was out. 
because a fuse had blown. The group proceeded with caution into the living room where they were met with a horrible sight. The room was covered in blood. Leonie and Genevieve lay on the floor brutally murdered and unrecognizable. The women had clearly been bludgeoned and stabbed in multiple places, and worse yet, their faces were nearly unrecognizable because both women had their eyes gouged out. Ooh. I know. Leonie's eyes were found in the folds of her scarf. One of Genevieve's was under her, and the other was found on the stairs. Once the evidence had led police to the staircase, you know, follow the eyes. Follow the trail of eyes. Oh, my God. They recalled the flickering light visible in the maid's quarters. You see, the Lancelin family was attended to by two housemaids, sisters named Christine and Leah Pepin, and everyone had feared that those girls had met the same fate as the ladies of the house. So initially, they're worried for their safety. The police tried to open the door to their quarters, the maid's quarters, but they found it was locked. So they called out numerous times, but there's no response. Which seems to confirm the fact that something has happened to them. Mm-hmm. So the police then went to call a locksmith. I, isn't it cop 101 to learn to break down a door? A bedroom door. This isn't know. an outside door. This is like a bedroom door inside the house. Yeah, but this is France. I guess. It's just so strange to me because they're in the house inspecting a crime. There could be, they could still be alive and like really badly injured. Behind right. that door. Well, maybe they, also, they tried and they couldn't. Maybe. And now they're getting a locksmith. And they also have the owner of the house right there. So it couldn't be like, we can't destroy property because they totally could. I don't know. Again, like I said, there's just weird things where I'm like, why didn't you just get in there? <laughs> I don't know. They didn't. So instead, they walked into town to find the locksmith. And they found him. And uh, I guess he's a 24-hour locksmith. And when he arrived, he was able to quickly trigger the lock, allowing the door to swing open freely. However, when it did, the police found something very curious indeed. Christine and Leah Pepin were both huddled in the same bed, completely naked, with a single candle burning for light. On the bedside table was a hammer with blood and human hair still clinging to it. Ooh. The Pepin sisters were um, taken into custody and immediately confessed to their crimes, calmly, showing no remorse. Mm. Medical examiners determined that both Leonie and Genevieve were killed through blunt force trauma to the head with a hammer and a pewter pot found in the residence. Post-mortem, a knife was used to mutilate their legs, buttocks, and genitals. Terrifyingly, their eyes had been removed first Oh, when the women were still alive to render them defenseless for the rest of the assault. That makes sense. That's like a, what, what animal does that? <laughs> it's a creature that like goes at your eyes first and then. Mm, crows will eat your eyes. Yeah. I don't know. But to do this, to remove their eyes, the sisters used only their bare hands. So they just reached in and gouged out some eyeballs. Mm. You know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets when he went after the basilisk. Yeah. That wasn't... Nope. Harry's not an animal. He's not. You went That's right, not a real story. Right to a huge snake, too, which is sure very did. uncharacteristic. Well, it was very uncomfortable, so... <laughs> Well, there was no giant tooth either. They, they just ripped it out with their hands. Ugh. I know. Also, some of the blood smeared on Leonie had been menstrual blood from Genevieve. Oh. I know. This is admittedly a very strange detail. There was blood everywhere, and this is quite a messy crime. Why add to the mix? <laughs> but also period blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> Did the eye gouging not do it for you? Don't like stabbing? Was it the sisters in the bed all bloody together? No. Period blood. Yeah. 
<laughs> that'll Ew, that'll get him. Period. Periods. <laughs> we hate it. Well, most likely this was done as an act of humiliation, obviously. That makes sense. Um, sorry, sorry we made fun of that. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. The detectives were pretty quickly able to sort everything out that happened that night, but what completely eluded them is to why. And it's still debatable as to why this happened. Mm-hmm. This is one of France's, like, most weirdest elusive crimes. I know weirdest isn't a word, but that's what came out. It is now. I made it one. So in order to get answers in this bizarre and gruesome case, we have to go back to the beginning. Christine and Leah Pepin, as you all have probably assumed, had a pretty dark childhood. Oh. They didn't just do that out of nowhere. It wasn't like they had a great time, and then they cold-bloodedly murdered these women. <laughs> Their parents, Clemence Dare and Gustave Pepin, were married on October in October sorry, of 1901 and settled down to start their family in Le Mans, France. Le Mans is an ancient city, first mentioned as being seized by the Roman Empire in 47 BCE. Wow, places are, like, so much older over there. I know. We don't have anything that old. I always think about that. I'm like, wow, you you guys literally have history. You've been around for, like, so long. Yeah, like, I could just ask my great-grandfather about what happened. <laughs> like, I mean, there's history country. here, too. We there just, is, like, yeah. murdered everybody who oh, yeah, made it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, good job, Sorry. us. <laughs> in fact, in Le Mans, there are remnants of a Roman wall that are visible in the old town portion of the city, and Roman baths are located by the river, the Sarche River, to be exact. Le Mans is located in northwestern France. It was the capital of the Provence of, it's spelled Maine. I know it's not pronounced Maine. <laughs> French Maine, which no longer exists. And now the capital of the Sarthe Department and the seat of the Roman Catholic Diocese of, um, is in Le Mans. So if you're, if you're French, I hope that was all very meaningful. Also, thank you for listening from France. Yeah. <laughs> Le Mans is actually most famous for the 24 hours of Le Mans endurance race. Because this is such an insane event, I had to like just jump down this rabbit hole okay. real quick for a minute. 24 hours of Le Mans is the world's oldest active sports car race in endurance racing held annually since 1923. And so it does overlap into this story. I didn't even know endurance car racing was a thing. It sounds more... Like a death wish, if you ask me. This event represents one leg of the triple crown of motorsport, with the other events being the Indianapolis 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix. The race, held in June, begins in mid-afternoon and finishes the following day at the same hour the race started the previous day. So, 24 hours in a car. Okay. That doesn't sound like hyper-dangerous at all. It sounds fine. I didn't even know races that were that long existed. Did yeah, you know this know. was a thing? I had no idea. I don't know. It struck me as very strange. There are, of course, a ton of insane deaths associated with 24 Hours of Le Mans. In fact, an accident in the 1955 race took out 83 spectators. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's what happens when you get sleep-deprived people a super-fast car and instruct them to go as fast as they can without stopping for, like, 24 solid hours. Can you—are there, like, passengers? Can there, you, like, drive and switch— you weren't allowed to have anybody ride with you for any leg of the race for, like, the first 20 or 30 years, I think. Now, this is just me remembering what I read. I don't have this information okay. in front of me. I think that now you can just to make sure you don't, like, fall asleep because that's crazy dangerous. Right. Um, but you can't – they can't drive any part of the leg. You have to You have to drive the whole time. I okay. mean, there are stops to refuel and, like, go to the bathroom and stuff. Yeah. You can't make Your someone – stops. Yeah. You can't make someone not go to the bathroom. 
and you can't not gas up a car for 24 hours, obviously, but like you're in that car driving. <laughs> that just struck me as really crazy, but that's why Le Mans is famous. Okay. And also Clemence and Gustave Pepin lived there. <laughs> they were freshly married and they settled in Le Mans and just five short months after their wedding, Clemence gave birth to their first child, a girl named Emilia. Now, if you do even a little math, you'll realize that Clemence and Gustave did not exactly have a white wedding. Mm. You see, Gustave had suspected that Clemence was having an affair with her employer, but when she wound up pregnant, Gustave quickly married her, assuming that once they were married and had a child, the affair would end. Of course. Isn't that what always happens? Yes. His suspicions, however, continued after the wedding and after Amelia's birth, and so Gustave found himself a job in another city thinking that this would enable him to move his little family out of Le Mans and keep Clemence away from her boss. It doesn't say anywhere what she did, but apparently her boss was a good time. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And that's not, of course, how it worked out. When Gustave announced that they would be moving to be closer to his new job, Clemence threatened to kill herself, stating that she, quote, would rather be dead than leave Le Mans. Oh. I wonder why. Generally, we don't threaten suicide over leaving our hometown, leaving a lover, however— that's a different story. So maybe that boss thing had more merit than... than Quite his, possibly. Yeah, I, I think Although it's true. Although Le sounds great. I mean, there's a crazy car race. Yeah. A lot of history. I wouldn't want to leave. I'd rather die than leave. Yeah. That's a safe bet. The Pepins did, however, remain in Le Mans after that. So she won out. And Gustave began to drink very heavily to compensate for his constant frustration. Christine and Leah were born at the dawn of the 20th century, 1905 and 1911, respectively, which was an extremely interesting time. I love a Victorian anything. Those formal kooks have given me endless hours of jaw-dropping research. It was a very experimental time, which paved the way for a lot of weird trial and error, and this was especially true when it came to parenting at that time. So before I describe Christine and Leah's upbringing to you, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about this time period? Do you have sure. to just like have those facts floating around in your head? Of course. I definitely do. Yeah, I um, but I would like to mention first that this isn't technically the Victorian era oh, anymore. Sorry. It's the Edwardian era. There's a little, some differences that will happen cool. in here, right? So before the Victorian era, so all of my facts I'll, I'll spurt off are about like babies and young children and things well, that like would, that. They would have been babies then, exactly. so that makes perfect sense. So before the Victorian era, children were viewed as tiny adults. We were basically just waiting till they were functional enough to be put to work. Then during the Victorian era, adults wanted to preserve childhood longer, at least till they were like 13 or 14. Right, right, right. Grown up. Yep. Mm -hmm. And by the time the Pepin sisters were born, it was more normal to give toys to babies at this point. Oh, good. So like soft teddy bears and dolls made out of wood or porcelain were pretty Love normal. a wood doll. Love it. It's great. So snuggly. Yes. <laughs> no splinters at all. Ever. And as toddlers, they would have been given dollhouses, model shops, jump ropes, and brightly colored toys that were definitely painted with lead. Of course. But because the girls were born in France, their upbringing would have been slightly different. The French still held on to preparing their children for adulthood almost immediately. 
the girls would have gotten stuffed animals and dolls, but they would have also gotten a lot of delicate figurines that depicted different professions. So maybe not them, but like children in oh, France. Oh man, my kids would have destroyed all of that shit so fast. Well, a lot of these, when you do look up the toys in this era, they're things like, to me, they look like knickknacks, like mm-hmm. things that I would have on my shelves now. Mm-hmm. But they're like weird. I, I wouldn't think to give them to a child. Right. They just look a little too delicate. So some of them would be like wind-up toys that could then walk or make sounds, like a chef chopping vegetables or a drummer drumming, so kind of like the— Oh, I've seen those old tin toys. They're cool. Mm -hmm. Their miniature dining sets would be fully stocked with beautifully ornate dishware, carafes, wine glasses, and a mini bottle of wine for the table. No. It would teach them how to, like, make the table for— Right, right, to be (laughs) a a hostess. Sorry. (laughs) But they were, like, beautiful— China, like small china plates. They would be just dust on my floor. Yeah. They look like what you would give at, um, and I think I gave this to Violet, like the Tiffany, like her first Oh, yeah, set. she didn't get to play with that. Oh, no. That's not something <laughs> you play with. But it's but that's what they would give their French children to play with. <laughs> uh, their doll furniture would also include like elegant Louis XV style overstuffed chairs Metal framed beds and gorgeous wickered carriages. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so fancy. Though many of the French toys would seem very mature, they still had paper doll cutouts, toy trains and boats, and other fun games like pickup sticks and various board games. And sometimes, I know in America at least, and I'm sure in France too, the toy trains would, you would actually use like gasoline in some of them or, um, Oh my god, what's it called? It's like like alcohol, basically. So almost like rubbing alcohol with methane. Like whatever. sterno type stuff? Yeah, it starts with an M, methyl slate or something. Mm. I don't know. But it's it's 90% alcohol, 10% methane. That's what you give kids. That word. That's great. I just didn't write it down. But overall, the toys were supposed to be less exciting and more educational. And a little addition on the toys to note here. During this time, many toys for kids were pretty dangerous. And as I said before, the toys were painted in bright colors and the paint almost always had lead in it. So that was deathly because all you need is like a speck of lead to like cause an issue. Then you have brain trouble forever. And so, you know, these kids would just be putting these toys in their mouth and holding them all day. And then asbestos was used in a lot of toys as well, too. In a lot of household products as well. It was everywhere. It was like their, they called it like their wonder, wonder something. I don't know. Great. Yeah. Anything green had arsenic in it too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then other items that were dangerous for babies were these long tube feeding bottles that were inexpensive but durable. And they came on the scene out of kind of like popular demand for like a need for something that was a little bit easier They're to feed so kids. They're so weird to look at. Yeah. They're so weird. Mm-hmm. And the rubber tube made it easier for babies to feed but was found to be a breeding ground for bacteria and it was deemed the killer tube and was discontinued in 1910. Soon after, the company Pyrex would then develop the style bottle that we have today with the rubber teat. The the pictures of kids using those bottles are so weird because it's like a kid just propped up in a chair with a bottle next to him and then this long, thin tube going up to their mouth. And they're like, this is great. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, and it was crazy because I guess they did say that the baby seemed to like it. It worked really well, Mm -hmm. but because it was just too much bacteria, so then they were getting sick. It just was too hard to clean. Cool. So, yeah. Baby killer bottles. They also were like, are you teething? Here's a lot of opium. So, again, I (laughs) looked that up. That's the other thing. You mm -hmm. had mentioned the opium thing. Mm -hmm. So, that, again, was definitely a lot more Victorian era. Mm -hmm. But doctors had already, at the end of the 1800s, they had already decided at that point, they, like, realized. They were like, oh, this is terrible. 
all That's the good. all the moms are addicted to opium and then oh, they're yeah. giving them to their children. So and then they were seeing the horrible side effects. So by this point when these girls are born, that was already like no knowledge like not to do. But if people did it, it was just like leftover like probably addicts. Yeah, it was called like the really famous one was like Mrs. Winslow or Dr. Winslow's soothing syrup. Yes. You can mm-hmm. still get the bottles yeah. on in like antique stores and stuff. And it was just alcohol and opium. And yeah. I would give it to kids by like the teaspoon for yeah. teething. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. But they luckily all, by this point, hopefully they didn't have to deal with that. But well, these people that are was pretty, pretty much like, so who knows? Yeah. That was pretty much like done by the end of the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good time to be a kid. Oh, yeah. For, like, stuff you can't really play with and everything is (laughs) fragile and painful. They took away all your opium. Oh, my God. I know. (laughs) The one thing. (laughs) The one thing they had going for them is that they were always fucked up on opiates. I'm just kidding, guys. Never. Children don't ever need opiates. I'm, I'm just kidding. So, on March 8th of 1905, Clemence gave birth to her second daughter, Christine. Clemence, however has not proven herself to be a very caring or attentive mother. Most sources say that she was not, quote, nurturing. And so Christine was just given to Gustav's sister and her husband shortly after she was born. Okay. Yeah, where she stayed happily for seven years. Christine's aunt and uncle actually loved her and were happy to have her as a child. So she had the first seven years of her life were good and happy. Like she had a loving home where parents dressed her and gave her these weird toys and fed her. But what about her other sister? Oh, just wait. She's not born yet. Oh, but, oh. Didn't you already know? Oh, Amelia, somebody? the yeah. first one? She's just kicking around at home. Okay. We'll get to her in a minute. Okay. Don't worry. For whatever reason, they keep her. She's the first. <laughs> she is. Though it was never spoken of, it would seem that Clemence had no noteworthy reaction to giving her child away and just handed her off as though she were nothing more than a sack of flour, which is pretty telling. Biologically, we are programmed to want to keep our babies with us. Please remember I said biologically and not logically. Plenty of women give their babies up for adoption every day and know that they have made the right choice for themselves and their child. But that doesn't make it easy. Mm -hmm. It's not usually easy for, like, someone who just gave birth to a child to hand them away. But she didn't. She gave no shits. It also makes me wonder, like, what was going on in her brain that this was, like, she had that level of separation from her child. I wonder if... It's because maybe her first child, if she was actually having this affair, mm-hmm. maybe her first child might have been the boss's. Maybe. And this one was Gustav's, and she didn't really care. Definitely possible. There was overlap. Mm-hmm. So that could be it, too. I mean, it's just, it's noteworthy to mention, like, something was weird that mm-hmm. she just, like, did not give any shits about her kids. Clemence then gave birth to her third daughter, Leah, on September 15, 1911, but she was not very enthusiastically received. Clemence would prove to be an all-around disinterested mother, often letting the baby wail in her crib and leaving little Amelia to fend for herself or look to her father. And I'm not really sure which one of those two is worse. Mm-hmm. But it's, that could just be like postpartum, right? Could it could, she be it could easily that? have been postpartum. I mean, she had three kids in a row. I don't know if it ever had time to balance out too much. The first one was born in 1901 and the last 1911. So there's a 10-year gap. She should have pulled out of some of it. I mean, I I say should, but that's not a thing. It could have been anything. Um, We don't really know, but I think something was going on, basically. Gustav, by this time, had become a very serious alcoholic and had taken to beating Amelia for any little mistake she made or for absolutely no reason at all. And Clemence, for her part, 
didn't give a shit about that either. So even if her child was from this lover that she had before, like, she doesn't care about her now. Okay. At first, it seemed that Gustave was merely physically violent with his oldest daughter, but of course it didn't end there. Oh, I don't want to know. I know. When Amelia was 10, she gathered her courage and admitted to her mother that her father had been raping her. One might assume that Clemence would scoop up her daughter and leave her piece of shit husband immediately, but nope, not in this story. Clemence flew into a rage, claiming that Amelia must have seduced her father and convinced him against his better judgment to have sex with her. Yeah, that girl, that woman's just off, is off the hinge. What it, how do you say Unhinged. That? Unhinged, thank you. Now, I wish I could say that this reaction was incredibly uncommon from mothers who discover their children, mostly daughters, have been victims of familiar rape. But it isn't. An organization called The Second Wound seeks to address counseling for victims of sexual violence who have specifically suffered this kind of reaction from their family, and I will provide a link to their website in the show notes should you or anyone you know need to seek out their services. Yeah. So it's a very specific thing that still happens to a lot of people. But Clements didn't stop at simply blaming Amelia. As punishment for her, quote, amoral behavior, Amelia was sent to the Bon Pasteur Catholic Orphanage. But this wasn't enough either. Clemence, who was on a roll and full of righteous indignation that she just couldn't seem to aim at the right person, assumed that this offense meant all of her daughters were evil whores. So Clemence pulled Christine from her happy home with Gustave's sister and sent her to live in the orphanage as well. And baby Leah was sent off to live with her great uncle and aunt, where she would remain until her uncle's death. So, like, Christine, the older sister that we speak of later, and Amelia will soon just, she's not in the story, really, had this happy home for seven years. And then for no reason that she ever knew was pulled out of it and put into an orphanage. So strange. She could have just left her. She didn't have to do anything. She could have left her with, with um, Gustav's sister. Yeah. She was fine there. There was absolutely no reason for her to do that. She just decided that they all needed to suffer. Well, that's what I mean. She's definitely unhinged. And, like, there's something in her, there's something telling her that, like, I don't know. She probably thinks that whatever is in her brain, whatever is going on, is probably telling her that she needed to do that to all of her I wonder kids. if some of it isn't religion driven because well, it's that's a what I was going to say Catholic it's a very, region. Oh yeah, that I mean that's what I'm thinking. It's a very mm-hmm. religious driven like she, as you said they're they're whores and they're probably sinning and and this is her way of like maybe saving them and it's probably a religious orphanage too. It is. It's a Catholic orphanage. Yeah. So Bon Pasteur now that you mention it, has been referred to as, quote, a convent refuge for disgraced and ruined girls. See? That's what, Mm -hmm. yeah. She thinks she's saving her children. Well, not that she cares that much because she just gets worse later. But she, she, I think she thinks she's punishing her children. I think she's like, you are evil children and you need to go to the church to not be evil anymore. Yeah, no, that makes more sense, yeah. But it's it's kind of you to like, Want to see the best? Well, in her. I just, I mean, I, I guess because I'm seeing it, yeah, how you're saying it, but also there's like a level of her, maybe like maybe you can get rid of the the spirit, yeah. you know? It's it all is horrible, of course. No matter how you look at it, yep, it's just a shitty train of thought. It is, and um, Bon Pasteur was known specifically for its brutality and discipline, which is about a bleak as bleak of a sentence as you can get. There isn't a whole lot of detailed information about the orphanage other than the fact that it existed and its reputation often preceded it. Though I think this was the case with all religious orphanages of the time. Like, none of them have great reputations for being loving to children. 
The Bon Pastor Church, however, is still around, and strange enough to garner an entry from Atlas Obscura, with the headline being, quote, This abandoned church in central Lyon is missing its front stairs. Okay. Mm -hmm. Atlas Obscura goes on to say, quote, If you look at this church, you'll notice something odd. There's no way to actually enter the front door, as the entrance is about 13 feet above the ground. Originally, a staircase was meant to be built, but building this staircase would have required destroying a nearby building, so the plan was scrapped. Rather than walk through the front door, the people had to slip in via a side entrance. Okay. They just never built front stairs. Oh, It's weird. just like this drop-off at the front door. How scary. Yeah. What an odd choice. We'll just let other people find another way in. That's fine. You can, like, creep through an alley. You don't need a front door. According to the information I have gathered about other similar orphanages at the time, the girls there would have led an austere life. Frivolity was seen as sinful, so they would have worn plain clothing, if not uniforms. It kind of depends on the budget the place had. And they would have spent their time learning, serving the church, reading the Bible, or in quiet prayer. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Discipline was strict and often came in the form of physical violence, withholding food, or forced grueling labor. Children would rise at dawn and retire at sunset. And this isn't a life I would ever choose at all, but... No, I don't think you choose that life. Unless you choose to enter the convent because you want to be a nun. They were oh, basically yeah. treated the same as the nuns were, except for they're like little children. Mm. And instead of just like quietly being in prayer, they were like beat up if they talked out of turn. I wonder if the nuns were like that. They were apparently not very nice. Okay. According to whatever, I don't have No, I mean, I guess I mean the, the women going in to become nuns. I don't know. Yeah. I think it was difficult on them, too. I feel like the whole organization was, like, pretty strict at the time. But despite all of her worst intentions, all three of Clemence's girls thrived at the Bon Pastor Orphanage, which is a real outlier in the true crime world. Usually, when someone is sent to the orphanage, that's when, like, the horrible stuff begins. Albert Fish is a prime example of this phenomenon, and I will get around to covering him. I said I wouldn't, but I realized that I reference him too much to avoid it. So I'll just give you guys a taste of how stone-cold horrible this guy is. He ate children and stuck sewing needles into his own perineum for fun. Oh. And that shit started in an orphanage. Well, that checks out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but thankfully, we're going off the beaten true crime path in this case, and that's not what happened here. Amelia was a pious girl and took to life at the convent extremely well, deciding to take her own vows in 1918. So she just went straight through and became a nun. I can't imagine it was any worse than the life she had at home, so she must have been like, oh, I was saved here. Mm -hmm. But this was not Clemence's plan for her daughter. She had wanted the nuns to raise her girls until they were of age. They also learned, like, trades, not trades, but, like, skills at the convent where they would learn how to, like, clean and keep house and stuff like that. And Clemence wanted them to find employment as live-in maids for wealthy families and then send all of their wages back home. So she wanted to farm them out for money, basically. Okay. We saw a lot of this behavior in the Jack the Ripper series we did. This was pretty common behavior for lower class families of the time period. Like a lot of those girls, that's what they, that's how they like ended up in prostitution because right. they like were maids for families and then things didn't go well. But usually the girls would keep their wages. This is uncommon. Like them not making their own living is not usually done. But Clements wanted the money for herself. So yet again, Amelia has disappointed her. And that is the end of Amelia in this story. She goes on to become a nun and lives piously ever after. Okay. So good for her. Okay. I guess the nuns probably protected her. They were like, she took a vow. You can't take her. Bye. She's right. a nun now. Christine came of age next, and she wanted to follow in Amelia's footsteps. She said she also wanted to be a nun, but she was only like 15 at the time and didn't take her vows before 
Clemence found out, so she put a stop to it right away and pulled Christine out of the orphanage. Then she found her position working as a maid in a few middle-class middle class households. The money, however, was never enough for Clemence, and so Christine was bounced around from household to household, working long hours and seeing nothing of it for herself. So that's another thing. Usually these girls worked in, like, one house. They were, like, a one family maid, or maybe two if they needed extra money. But she was working it for, like, a bunch of families. Wow. Which means her hours were insane. After um, Clemence's uncle, the one who was raising Leah, passed away, Clemence decided that two cash cows would be better than one. So she dragged Leah from her happy home, where she still had an aunt who loved her and would have continued to raise her. Just the uncle died. And she put her to work as well. Leah, of course, did not see a dime of her own wages either. So now both of the girls are living at home, working at multiple houses, slaving away, and giving all of their money to Clemence. Mm -hmm. In some retellings of this story, it is said that Clemence and Gustave divorced in 1913, and in others it doesn't say if they ever did. There is a chance that Leah and Christine at this point are living in a home with their abusive monster of a father. And if that's the case, who knows what happened to them while they were under the same roof? Because we already know that he beat up and raped their oldest sister. So thankfully this didn't continue for too long though. Despite their six-year age gap and having lived their entire lives separated, Christine and Leah quickly became extremely close. Remember, they don't really know each other. Right. And they probably knew each other more at the orphanage, but like, I don't know, I don't know how much time together they would have had because of their difference in age and like the fact that they kept them pretty constantly busy. Mm -hmm. So when they suddenly were living under the same roof, that's when they became really, really close. The girls would spend every moment of their downtime together, often closed away in a room. And who could really blame them? They had both been through a terrible trauma. I think that knowing there was a better life out there and then having it being torn away from you is worse than just having everything be awful all the, like, since the get-go. Agreed. I recognize that it's never better to have more abuse, but if you don't know any better, at least for a time, maybe you wouldn't know how bad it was. Mm-hmm. I just think that comparison is, like, makes it so much worse. When they were in public, the girls were always together but never spoke to each other. They would just be, like, stone silent, looking ahead, walking next to each other, which is real creepy. Mm-hmm. Despite never communicating verbally, the girls could anticipate each other's every move, and this gave them the reputation of being telepathic. Now, I'm going to wager that their shared trauma and probable social anxiety due to their insane history is why they didn't talk in public too much. Plus, in a convent, as a child, children are seen and not heard. They probably weren't allowed to speak too much, but telepathy is good, too. We'll go with that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. In 1926, Christine was able to get an enviable job as the live-in maid and cook at 6 Rue Bruyere for the Lancelin family, which included René Lancelin, a retired solicitor, his wife, Madame Leonie Lancelin, and their youngest daughter, Genevieve, who still lived in the house. And as we mentioned earlier, the eldest daughter was married and out of the home at this time. Christine was very good at her job. The Lancelins were extremely happy with her service. So happy, in fact, that they agreed to bring on her sister, Leah, as a chambermaid. So now it is 1926, and both girls are out of their mother's home. They are entering the world as adults, even though Leah is just 15 years old at the time. But I guess that's kind of grown up for back then. So, Leslie, can you tell us anything about 1926? Yeah, is yeah, just, I can talk to you about that. That's wonderful. What was the world sure. like for these young ladies? Well, so I guess I'll just stick with, like, women working. Sure. You know, so if they had to, many women found work as washerwomen maids, secretaries, and typists. They also found a lot of jobs within the textile industry at this point. 
which I found was booming in France. Oh. So many women worked for different companies, like say it was an automotive company. They would do like this, they would sew the fabrics of the seats. Oh, so, okay. That's yeah. interesting. Um, and then another fact I found interesting is that French women could look for professions in teaching and medicine so long as they did not get married. Interesting. And Why? this was kind of a trend in France at the time. Many women stayed unwed due to the lack of men in the area. And a lot of Fr- a lot of young French men had died during the First uh, World War. Oh, okay. So there just was, <laughs> there just didn't seem to be as much of a pool for them. And especially if they were like in a certain town, they're also like, the guys could have been like taken. They could too. just find like car racers coming in. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at this point, too, uh, there was um, – this was kind of the start of – so the the war had just happened, which meant that a lot of women had been working. Right. And then they had to go like a decade or more – Back in the home. Back in the home. Mm-hmm. But the men found like, oh, we do kind of need them to do some of this work. And that's where like the textile industries were booming. So they were like, oh, we can put them in there. And then we do need like secretaries at like the hospitals and all these other things. So like they they can go back to doing that. But – can't Can play they? in your female football league anymore because the men are back. Stop doing that. Ew. So, and a lot of pe- a lot of the women just wanted to have careers, and so one of the things I guess in teaching or medicine was that they didn't they didn't want you to be wed because of the idea of if you get married, most of them would leave their job once they got married, but also if they had children, children. and things like that. Yeah, and it was just too much, so they had to be like committed to their career, which a lot of a lot of them wanted to be. So it was interesting. A lot of women still get discriminated against if they get pregnant. Now, oh, 100%. You won't get hired pregnant. They'll be like, you're going to yeah. have a child, and then you won't be as dedicated to your job. Right, and th- that's why we get paid less. Because <laughs> we're more likely to take off. I hate everything. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know women <laughs> that ever take off anything, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I work more during the year. I can take off six months. <laughs> Seriously. Six months is lucky. I know. Or I like had two like, months. What? I, yeah. You get eight weeks here, and I only took six when I had Violet. Like, yeah. Crazy. Sometimes you can't afford it. No, you can't because <laughs> there's no paid maternity leave. Yeah. <sighs> crazy. I guess some companies have it, but that's not like a thing everywhere. Yeah, that was kind of like the working area in, right. the, in France at the time. Well, Christine and Leah shared living quarters in the Lancelin household, and they spent all of their time off together as well, so they just continued the lifestyle they had in their mother's house in the Lancelin house. The girls worked 14 hours a day, six days a week, and on Sundays they went to church, and sometimes they went to visit a local fortune teller afterwards, which sounds like a real conflict of interest to me, but they still did it. Well, they were young. That's like the fun thing yeah. to do. At one such visit, the fortune teller claimed that the sisters had been man and wife in a previous life. And it is said that the girls told the fortune teller that this did not surprise them. It made perfect sense. Okay. Which is uncomfortable at best. But there are many who suspect that Christine and Leah developed a romantic relationship over time. Mm. There is no confirmation of this, but given the time they spent apart, followed by their rather extreme reintroduction to each other, this could be an example of something called genetic sexual attraction, which by some people is science and some people think it's total pseudoscience. So you can take this for what it's worth. Genetic sexual attraction is a concept in which a strong sexual attraction may develop between close blood relatives who first meet as adults. There are tons of examples of people meeting their birth parents and then being extremely sexually attracted to them, which is real gross. 
Right. But it's a weird phenomenon. And I do believe there is some merit to this. But like I said, like not everybody believes this is science. And it's a relatively new theory too. So some people say it's because these people are unable to qualify their sudden intense feelings for one another. And so it just kind of channels into like sex or romance. Yeah. Most frequently, like I said, it's it occurs between biological parents and the children they are reunited with after having given them up for adoption. However, there aren't any examples of it being like siblings. Well, not that I could find. I'm I'm sure they're out there, but it is the same concept. Okay. The term was coined in the United States in the late 1980s by Barbara Gagno, the founder of the Truth Seekers in Adoption, which sounds very shady, a <laughs> Chicago-based support group for adoptees. This is who you want in your adoption support group. Yeah. <laughs> and their newfound relatives. So this woman developed sexual feelings for her son when she met him after he was adopted away. But he didn't want any part of that shit. Right. Although a lot of times both parties feel it. And there are some real uncomfortable stories about people like forming relationships with their biological parent and wanting to like marry them, feeling like they are just like on fire in love with this person. And it's like their parent that they didn't know until months ago. Interesting. It's, it's definitely interesting. And there is a specific case that deals with this that we will cover and we'll get more into it at a later time. But I do think that some of that is involved here. So I feel like this is relevant to explore. Because many traits are at least partially determined by genetics, genetic sexual attraction is presumed, according to those who believe in the concept, to occur as a consequence of genetic relatives meeting as adults, typically as a consequence of adoption. However, this is a very rare consequence of adoptive reunions. So that's typical, but like, don't think it happens every time. It, it doesn't. Right. Incest is extremely rare between people raised together in early childhood due to a reverse sexual imprinting known as the Westermark effect which desensitizes people to later in life to close sexual attraction. So the Westermark effect says that anybody you are a baby, like a little child around, you will not be sexually attracted to. It kind of like cuts that shit off. If you grow up with someone closely, that's why like according to this, why you're not attracted to like your cousins and like, mm -hmm. you know, your, your siblings where you're not supposed to be. But if you don't have that desensitization period in your childhood, this theory says that you could easily just form an attraction to them. That's, I mean, I guess that's what I was thinking a little bit more, for them at least, too. Yeah. Where they didn't, if if they did have a relationship at all, mm -hmm. it's probably because there is somewhat of a break. Like, they probably just do not feel like sisters. They feel more like best friends. Exactly. And that's that's exactly what this theory says. And also because they're re they are are related, you're going to feel this like intense bond mm -hmm. with these people, or you can at least. And it is hypothesized that this effects evolved the Westermark affected to prevent inbreeding. So like you're supposed to not be attracted to your relatives, so you don't muddy up the gene pool. Right. Christine and Leah were not yet adults when they met technically when they were reunited, but they were beyond early childhood, mm -hmm. and so it's possible that the Westermark effect did not exist among them. Well, they were definitely both going through hormonal changes when they reunited. Well, right? Leah was still pretty young, but okay. she was beyond very early childhood. And they were in the orphanage at first. Right. So I don't really know how much exposure they would have had to well, one another. that's what I mean. They wouldn't have been like sisters together in the orphanage. Until they were teenagers, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So like this is plausible. It, it may not be definite, but like it's definitely worth considering. Given the way their lives had gone up to that point, I think having some confusing feelings sounds pretty on the nose. Mm -hmm. 
Plus, like, this person is your only ally in the world. You're right. going to have all of your positive feelings are channeled onto this one human. You can't really trust anybody else. Make no mistake, I'm in no way condoning incest or murder. <laughs> However, I am saying that the circumstances that led to the Papan sisters possibly being romantically involved with one another were not necessarily pure psychosis, as some people have, have theorized after reading this. It's highly likely that it was, like, way more complicated than that. It seemed that the Papan sisters were living pretty happy lives, working for the Lancelins, though, and keeping company with one another. They never showed any interest in suitors, but maybe they weren't even interested in men at all. We don't really know. The girls were well-fed, paid standard wages, had a heated room, and for girls of their station, that's pretty successful. Yeah. The girls even began to refer to Madame Leonie as Mama. Ooh. Precious. And their actual mother as that woman. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about her, too. <laughs> I know. I, I don't blame them. I want to call Clemence that woman as well. When Madame Leonie found out that the girls were um, sending all of their wages home to their mother, she was incensed. Madame Leonie put an end to that arrangement and made sure the girls were keeping their money for themselves. So she's like a fierce advocate for them. In doing this, she also had them sever all ties with Clemence or that woman for good. She's like, your mother's awful. You should be keeping your money. Don't talk to her anymore. I'm going to make sure that you make, make your money and you're taken care of. Yes. Good, right? And things went on like this for the Pippin sisters for a few years, but as the 20s turned into the 30s, Madame Leonie developed depression, and the girls became the target of her mental illness. Oh, no. Yeah. Gradually, <laughs> gradually things grew. She grew harder on the girls, insisting the house be almost sterilely clean. She would regularly perform white glove inspections where you, like, put on white gloves yeah. and see if there's dust and punished the girls when she found so much as a speck of dust anywhere. If Madame Leonie saw something on the floor, even if she or her daughter Genevieve had dropped it themselves, she would call in one of the girls and have them drop to their hands and knees to pick it up at once. Oh. Yeah. And there's, like, also stories circulating around that she would, like, you know, put her feet up on them, put them on the floor and stuff. Like, she made them little servants. It was not good. And if the girls were caught missing a spot while sweeping up— Madame Leonie would pinch them hard and pull them to the ground to correct their error. So she would, like, grab them by a little bit of skin, like, pinch it, and then pull them down to the ground and, like, make them immediately clean it up. Oh. Yeah. It was also rumored that Madame Leonie would hit them and bounce their head into walls. She would push them into walls, but also, like, purposefully slam their head into the wall. Oh, god! So it got increasingly, like, very violent. Which stinks because, again, this woman was their only advocate and the person that, like, really tried to help them have a life. And then all of a sudden, because of her own struggles, she's, like, beating the shit out of them and berating them and forcing them on their hands and knees to clean things. Wow. They just, their life was hard. And so this harsh treatment continued as the Papan sisters slogged along, dreaming of their early childhood spent with people who loved them. So they knew there was better out there. This brings us up to the year of the crime. So, Leslie, why don't you set the stage and tell us a little bit about 1933 before we get into, like, really gruesome murder. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like it was great for their family, but in the whole, France was actually doing pretty great at this time. The, the Lancelins were good. They were well off. Oh, okay, so. okay. Um, I thought she was depressed because of, like, the depression. Like, that's what— no, she, she just, just got she depressed. She just got depressed. Okay, so France was doing great. America was dealing with the Great Depression. But because France was kind of in this, like, economic bubble yeah. and focused mainly on their own agriculture, uh, they never felt an impact like the rest of Europe did. Oh, good for them. 
The country was celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Tour de France, mm. which was another style of toys that they would give children. Like that was like a little like yeah, something? little figurines and oh. stuff of like the tours. And it was yeah, they were like little bicyclists, and they it would like basically get them excited or inspired to race themselves. Cute. Yeah. On a more depressing side note, the French were mourning the loss of 204 citizens in their country's second worst train accident, the Lagny Pompon Railroad disaster. Mm. It involved two trains colliding. The worst part of the story was that it happened around Christmas time, so passengers were all traveling to spend <gasps> holidays with their families. Oh my God, that's awful. So sad. Maybe she knew somebody on that, and that's why she was depressed. Maybe. And so now on a brighter note, hmm. um, the last thing I looked up was music in France because one of my favorite radio stations to listen to is um, French pop in the 60s. It's so good. You're such a hipster. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, so ballets were still very popular, allowing classical composers to still be prominent. However, jazz was really making a splash. Splashy jazz. Jazz had made it to France around 1917 when the American soldiers arrived and brought them, brought with them military bands. And then these bands were made up of like all black musicians and led by Broadway band leaders and other famous American musicians. That's fun. Mm-hmm. And because of the war that had happened, music would kind of take this like backseat for a little while. They were a little busy. Yeah. So it wasn't until the 1930s when Paris finally, like, latched on to jazz fully. Mm -hmm. And in 1933, they opened up their first jazz club called Hot Club de Paris. Ooh, I want to go there. I know. I bet that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that was that was fun. Jazz was going. Was well, great. Christine and Leah were not at Hot Club de Paris. No, they weren't. They were not even a little bit. On February 2nd, 1933, the Pepin sisters had been tasked with picking up an iron that had been sent to the shop to be repaired. Madame Leonie and Genevieve went out shopping for the afternoon. They would meet up with Renée at a dinner party later that evening. So this is the schedule they were supposed to have. The Lancelins said they would all be home late. The Pepin sisters returned home with the iron and set about their duties, one of which was ironing. So it makes sense. They had to go get the iron. When Christine plugged in the iron, sparks flew from the outlet and a fuse blew. Early electricity, the overload of the breaker or something, shit happens. The house was plunged into semi-darkness. Having no electrical knowledge, the girls went on with their chores as best as they could, lighting candles here and there as the sun began to set. So that's, there's where the candles come in because they couldn't light any of the lights. Around five o'clock in the evening, Madame Leonie and Genevieve unexpectedly walked in the front door. The ladies of the house had wanted to freshen up before they met Renee at the dinner party and were shocked to find the house in total darkness. In some accounts, Christine rushed to explain what had happened with the faulty iron, but Madame Leonie wanted to hear nothing of it. In other accounts, the girls inexplicably tell Madame Leonie that Christine had urinated into an electrical socket and shorted it out. That doesn't sound right. That sounds like the gossip. It makes no sense, but it is... There in some places, so I... That seems like the retelling from somebody else was like, she probably pissed in an outlet. So I, when when we originally covered this, I did so much research on it. Like I watched the documentaries, which are few and hard to find and read articles in French. And I, well not, I had them translated, obviously. And everything I could get my hands on. And really one of the only places that says this one story is Wikipedia. Now Wikipedia, for especially older true crime stuff, is 
is actually pretty reliable because you can check all the sources. Mm -hmm. You can check where everything came from. All the newspapers are there, and it's usually not too bad. And it's where people go immediately. So if anybody Googles this, that's the first thing they're going to find. And it's in that story. So I was like, I have to say it. But I, I don't think that's what happened. And it's there's nowhere a else. source for it? Like well, you there's not able... a source for that specific piece of information. There's like, okay. you know, 30 sources afterwards that you can click on. And I, I've read some of them. I found other sources on my own. Well, that's what I mean because like anybody can edit that. So it could have just been like some guy named Todd in Wisconsin just being like she pissed in an outlet. It could be. <laughs> They're a little bit better about that now and historians run some yeah. of like the pages. But like I just wanted to include that because – if anyone is doing their own independent internet research, they're going to come across it. I just don't think that it's true. Right. I think more likely they were like, we plugged the iron in and the whole diffuse is blue and we didn't we didn't know what to do and we couldn't fix it. And she was like, ah! just mad about it. Right. Because that's what happens next. In either case, Madame Leonie flew into a rage at the girls, shouting and trying to attack them on the first floor landing, which is not out of character for her. She has been hitting them and slamming their heads into the walls when they made no mistakes. Mm-hmm. But this time, Christine snaps. She lunged at Genevieve and gouged her eyes out with her bare hands. Yeah, she's right pissed. for it. Yes, she sure is. Leah then joined in the struggle and attacked Ma, um, Madame Leonie after Christine ordered her to gouge her eyes out as well. So Christine's like, You get on the mom, rip her eyes out. I'm on it. Okay. Christine then ran downstairs to the kitchen where she retrieved a knife and a hammer. She brought both weapons back upstairs where the sisters continued their attack, stabbing the women in the face, chest, and thighs until they were virtually unrecognizable. At some point, one of the sisters grabbed a heavy pewter pitcher and used it to strike the heads of both Lancelin women, which ultimately is what killed them. So they survived an insane amount of knife wounds. They were probably mostly, like, superficial. They're just, like, trying to hurt them. Yeah. And then they killed them with a really big, heavy pewter pitcher that they bashed them over the head with. Yeah. I mean, they had just used all their energy to gouge out eyeballs. I want to know. Sure. Is it easy to do that? Is it easy I don't to think take so. out somebody's eyeballs? Your eyeballs are anchored by lots of things. They don't like, just come out. How? Yeah. Like, how does that happen? How did? They just let them take their eyes. What? How did I that happen? I think that if you're in like a crazy blind rage, yeah. and you get—I mean, I guess like maybe they scratched. Maybe they were like scratching at if, the corneas, and then they were just like, "This is gonna get real gross." Yeah, no, tell me. I don't understand. So you're—I'm not a doctor. I'm not an anatomist. But oh, your eyes are like, you know, like delicate little squishy things. Yeah. So if you dig your thumb into the corner of your eye, it's gonna give. And you can oh, get yeah. down oh, you underneath can, like, pop it. it. It could be like a bloop. Yeah, and it's like all like liquid too. So yeah, you could release a lot of that. I guess that. that's what, yeah, because I guess you're supposed to take your thumbs mm-hmm. in. Into so the I guess if they did that. If they got in and underneath it, people are like heaving into their phones right now. People hate this so much. I can tell. I'm sure they want I'm sure they're thinking the same thing yeah. though. I'm sure they want to know I, how. So somebody tell me. I think it is extremely possible. I think pulling the whole eye out is probably the more difficult part, but I think the gouging and like— No, I think once you pop it out, you just like pull. But you have all the, the nerves at the back of your eye that are Yeah, connected. but if you're in that much of a rage, you're just ripping shit out. I guess, yeah. But you can get under—I mean, like if you were motivated, you could get in and under an eyeball. Like think of how, oh, yeah. how flexible your eyelids are and stuff. They're very elastic. You could move them a lot. Yeah, that's true. Okay, all right. But like 
That's one thing if they're if you're just standing there allowing it to happen. But these are like also little girls, like especially Leah. Mm-hmm. Leah is that she's her like name? 15. Leah. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's young, and I don't know. I mean, well, well I mean, she's older. She's not fifteen at this point in time. Oh, that's she's, true. She's they still are not that they old. are older at this point. I'm still thinking of her as like a little girl. I know it, the it, the story skip is a long timeline. That's true, so but they're easy. yeah, they're like in their twenties at this point. It's 1933, and she was born Christine in 19. Is, the youngest was born in 1911, so yes. she is yeah, so she's 21. She could gouge out an eyeball, no problem. Yeah, and she's probably strong. I'm going to take that All back. That I don't housework. think it's that hard. There are other cases where this has been done. It's yeah. not like— I guess I'm just thinking of—I don't—and I'm sorry we're spending this much time on it, mm-hmm. but I don't—I guess I agree with you. It's probably not that hard to just take out an eyeball, but then to have somebody fighting on the other end of it. That's where I feel like how easy was it for them to just I don't go— I think that first of all, it was terrifying. Yeah. And second of all, as mean as they were, I don't know how strong they were. They were women who didn't do anything for themselves. That's true. And these were like hardworking, furious women. God, they were probably so <laughs> They were probably shape. real strong. They had to like carry things upstairs, like buckets of water and things like Man, that. They, they had to like, like Britney Abs. They probably did have Britney Abs. <laughs> and like pretty strong arms. Yeah, Michelle Obama arms. Yeah. And Britney Abs. Yeah. Killing everything. Yeah. Gouging eyeballs is no problem when you're that strong. Glad we got over that. Okay. All right. I'm here for it. No, now. that's interesting, though. It's definitely a good question. Can you just, like, do that? But I guess you can. Yeah. Like Indiana Jones like It's like a, like a feat. Like yeah. A, yeah. They just. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Guys, it's not, not that I'm saying, like, you should go test this out and see how easy it is to pop out an eyeball. But if you're a doctor, Dr. Lisa, why don't you tell us how easy it is to get an eyeball out? Because I'm pretty We're sure. We're like a self-defense um, instructor. They tell I'm, you to do that in self-defense, to, like, gouge at eyes. That's one yeah. of the things, to put your thumbs in, like, in the eyes. That's why I'm, like, I know that it's something that you do, but then I don't know how well they were trained in that. They weren't. They were just, like, <laughs> go for the eyes. That's what it, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. And they were screaming about it, too. And one did it, and the other one was, like, you do it, too. And she was, like, I know how to do it, too. And they, Yeah, because <laughs> she watched the first one do it. How hard? Oh, my God. Okay, so anyway, after they hit them over the head with the— pewter pitcher, the girls just continued to beat up their dead bodies because yeah. the blow to the head does them in, but they don't stop. They just keep mutilating. Well, now mutilate. they're just angry. Yeah. They just keep mutilating the buttocks, genitals, and thighs of both Leonie and Genevieve and smearing menstrual blood they discovered had been coming from Genevieve onto her mother's corpse in a final act of defiance and humiliation. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what detectives assumed is that that was kind of a like a Big, giant fuck you. Yeah. And I can't really argue. It's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. And plus, I think at that point in time in that era, especially among Catholics, like, it would have been a shameful thing to reveal, like, menstrual blood. Oh, yeah. it's There's still so much shame associated with it. Ladies get periods. Get over it. It's fine. Some men get periods. Get over that. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> After they had finished... They were like, I mean, the women were obviously dead long before they finished. They just, they decided they were done. Okay. The girls went up to their room, took off all of their clothes, and took a bath together before they locked themselves in their bedroom, relying only on the light of one candle. And when the police found them, they were in the same bed, locked in an embrace. Oh, that's really sad. It is sad. But like, naked, hugging your sister after a bloody crime, not a good look. Well, no, but that's like, they're like 
probably comforting each other. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I know it's not a yeah. It's not. We're a good not on their side at this point. Obviously, no. they just did like a really terrible thing. But still, no, like they're God, like they've been they're through just it. Broken. They're totally broken. Yeah. I think that like that was just they just were done. Their last tether had snapped, and they just went for it. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, the sisters immediately confessed to all of their crimes, but they claimed that they had done this in self-defense. Okay. Though it was obvious by the nature of the damage they had caused to the Lancelin women, not to mention the post-mortem activities, that this is not self-defense. Right. Self-defense is like a couple injuries and then you run away. You don't like just overkill the shit out of people in self-defense. A crime of passion, maybe, for sure, but not self-defense. The girls engaged in a lot of what I just said, overkill, which is exactly what it sounds like. I don't know how many times we've talked about this on the podcast mm-hmm. before, but a killer going way above and beyond what is necessary to take a life, often not stopping their violence even after their victim is long dead, is called overkill. And it only tends to happen in crimes of, like, extreme passion and emotion. So these mm-hmm. people, they almost always know each other. It's not going to happen with, like, random acts of violence, at least not usually. And um, they're they're in, like, they're – Something is really going on. They're, like, furious or sad or grieving. Like, something's happening. In September of 1933, the sisters went to trial. Psychologists for the defense said that the sisters had relied on each other so fully and for so long that they no longer had operated as two people, but one mind with two bodies. Christine being the dominant one and Leah being completely absorbed. Their defense lawyers claimed that they were insane at the time of the murder and under the trance of a folly adieu, which we discussed during the Slenderman murder case and is all the more relevant in the wake of Anissa Wire's release this week. Oh. Yeah, so Anissa was just released a couple days ago. If you're in our Facebook group, there is an article on it there, um, and I have a comment there and everything. Um, But Anissa was also said to be the one in that pair that was, like, absorbed. She was under the influence of another person. Um, So it's just kind of an interesting comparison. In this case... The defense said that their delusion was that the rest of the world was against them. And I wonder why they would think that. Nobody had done anything but horrible things to them their whole life. And that the Lancelins had abused them, which they had. Christine and Leah appeared in court as though they were completely catatonic. They just sat there staring blank ahead in a daze. Their defense lawyers often showed evidence of mental instability in their family. Again, not difficult. Psychologists for the prosecution, however, claimed that the sisters were completely sane and calculating and that this was an act of class warfare because they were an upper-class family and the sisters were their maids. Their sanity could be proven by the fact that they had the presence of mind to clean up after the event because, remember, they took off their clothes and took a bath. The jury clung to this one fact and decided that the sisters were guilty. Christine was given the death sentence. Um, She was to be executed by guillotine. And Leah was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor because the jury believed that she had been controlled by her sister and therefore was not technically guilty herself, just like Anissa walks free now and Morgan Geiser is still institutionalized. Okay. So this kind of stuff is still extremely relevant today. The sisters did not do well being separated, though. During her confinement, Christine became completely unhinged, refusing to eat and attempting to tear out her own eyes, like violently. She did, like, injury to her own eyes. Mm. She would submit to nothing until she saw her sister, and eventually authorities relented and allowed them a visit, which is nuts, don't do that, at which time Christine tried to kiss Leah and unbutton her blouse. Again, we think they might have had a relationship that was more than your average sister. And this is a big confirmation of that. On January 22, 1943, President Albert Lebrun 
issued a stay of execution for Christine, and she was resentenced to a lifetime of hard labor, which was again transferred to life in, ins- in an insane asylum. Christine wrote Leah and attempted to see her, but Leah declined. Leah was released after eight years of her 10 sentenced on good behavior. She went to live with her mother and worked as a hotel maid. I cannot believe she lived with her mother. Yeah. I guess she had nowhere else to go. What about her aunt? I know. I always think that. I mean, it was her great uncle and great aunt, so maybe she didn't live much longer after he died. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just – and, like – what about the Gustav's brother that had Christine? Like, what, what are those people doing? Why can't they go see them? hmm I don't know. Christine, having been denied by Leah, stopped eating and wasted away in the asylum, finally dying on May 18th, 1937. Wow. She just starved herself to death. Mm. That is a long death. Yeah. This case had an enormous impact on the community, and was debated intensely by intellectuals of the time. Some people considered that the murders had been a result of, quote, exploitation of the workers, considering that the maids worked 14-hour days with only half day off each week. Intellectuals empathized with the Papan sisters' oppressive struggle of the social classes. The murder had significant influences on French intellectuals Jean Genet, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Jacques Lacan, who sought to analyze it, and some considered it a, sim- a symbol of class struggle. The case formed the basis of a number of publications, plays, films, as well as essays, spoken words, songs, and artwork. Ton of stuff based on the Papan sisters. And that takes us to the end. Wow. Yeah. Kind of a nut story that I originally somehow did in 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Well, yeah, we probably didn't have all the... Um explanations for everything. No, I just kind of plowed straight through it. And I don't know that we discussed the eyes. No, we didn't at length discuss eye gouging (laughs) at the time, but that's there for you guys now. Yeah. We do this all for you, man. All for you. Toast? Toast. Huh. This is a... Hmm. This one's hard. Um, how about to the, uh, to the nice aunts and uncles Yes, to the nice family members who would have kept those girls. Yeah. Cheers to them. Nobody else comes off real good in this story. Yeah. Like you can't the I struggle to toast the girls because they they committed they a did horrible crime. Horrible. Amelia, we could toast the oldest sister who's like who but went you to know, be a nun. I almost struggle with that though because I bet you she was then if those nuns were horrible to those children, she probably was also horrible to the children once she became a nun. It's possible, but not all of them were like educators. They didn't all work with children. Okay. Some of them just lived their nun life. So maybe she found some peace. So let's let's toast to her having found peace, hopefully. Cheers to Amelia. Just like, you know, singing hymns and like maybe gardening or something. Oh, yeah. That'd be nice. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They have like every checkpoint. Like, if I were abused as a child and neglected as a child and bounced around to different relatives as a child and ripped away from my happy home. And Lived in an orphanage while I knew my parents were out there and other family members that cared about me. And my other family me. members, yeah. And then also had a weird sexual relationship with my sister and then was taken in by a boss who I thought loved me, but then the boss also abused me and made me feel like shit. And thought that I peed in a socket, we would be dead. We would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Get on the mom. Rip her eyes out. I'm on it. Okay.